Welcome to Cybersecurity Unplugged, the cyber theory podcast where we explore issues that matter in the world of cybersecurity. So good day, everyone. This is Steve King. I'm the managing director here at Cyber Theory. Today's podcast welcomes Amit Shah, who's the director of product marketing at Dynatrace and one of the guys who discovered the Log4j vulnerability early on. Amit has participated with product marketing teams at places like Splunk and Digital and PayPal and after graduating from UC Berkeley with an undergrad in electrical engineering and computer science and earning an MBA from Cornell. So, and we're going to talk about uh, <laughs> vulnerabilities today. So welcome, Amit, and thanks for joining us. Thanks, Steve. Uh, really excited to be here. Terrific. A log for shell is a software vulnerability in Apache uh, Log4j2. Uh, popular and well-known Java library for logging error messages in applications. It's a known vulnerability with a severity rating of 10. And several patches had been released by the time it was discovered, one of which didn't work so well. What makes it so dangerous is it's virtually everywhere. It runs on Amazon Web Services all the way to VMware with a whole host of dependencies among affected platforms and services that makes patching a nightmare. It gives attackers complete control over any internet-connected service that uses the Log4j library anywhere in the software stack. How did you guys discover it, and what do you do to deal with it? That's a great question, Steve. We, we were certainly not the, you know, the very first folks to discover it. I think uh, we, we partner with another organization uh, called Sneak. So we get a vulnerability feed from them. And they were one of the first to both publish this within their, their, their vulnerability database and give us the ability to automatically find it both within our environment as well as in our customers' environments. And so we, we found out about it just like everyone else did on December 9th, that last year in 2021. And... What makes our situation a little bit different is that we use Dynatrace application security on Dynatrace as well. And so we were able to find out within minutes of of the discovery of the vulnerability and it being published in the vulnerability database, where all it was within our own environments, meaning the software as a service SaaS environment that we provide to our customers. Um, And we were able to use the information uh, from there to patch it within a couple of hours, prioritize where all it is, and which instances of it need to be absolutely fixed uh, immediately versus which ones are in parts of the application that are not necessarily easily accessible from the internet or don't have access to sensitive data and could wait um, a a day or two in order to be patched. And this is similar for the rest of our customers as well. And so this is one of those cases where our customers discovered within their environments at the same time as we did, and they were able to get into action in a similar uh, quick timeframe. Yeah, that's... Terrific. But as a pure zero-day attack, Log4j raises a lot of difficult questions, it seems to me. And among them, uh, how many more of these uh, will we discover and will we ever be free from that particular brand of threat? You know, so the U.S. CISA recently declared Log4j, Log4Shell to be an endemic Vulnerability, meaning they expect that we're going to keep seeing it uh, pop up for over the next uh, year or a couple of years to come. 
And part of that has to do with how you, with what you earlier mentioned, which is, you know, it's fairly widespread. It could, it, it's in not just components of software that you've developed internally, but it could be in pretty much any component that you've bought from a third party or customized off the shelf software or any other third party library that you might be using, uh, open source library. This one is probably going to be around for a while. Um, in fact, if you look at the most exploited vulnerabilities in any given year, this year, log for shell is in the past, most vulnerabilities that have been most exploited actually have been around for quite a while for, for similar reasons to, to log for shell. And as the use of open source software explodes, as the pace of software, to, for software development keeps on increasing, I think it's fairly safe to say that we're going to see a, a, a lot more of these in the future. Huh. Well, that's not very encouraging. And I, I think, you know, uh, patching doesn't seem to be the solution here either, as this one is difficult to patch. And you guys yourselves have characterized this as, you know, enabling malicious actors to execute any code on the system, to access any sensitive configuration data and gain, obviously, complete control. That means all data and all applications, like a Burglars got keys to the front door and a combination of the safe inside. Sounds like the end of days to me. That's a great point, Steve. It's not just that the burglars have the keys to your front door. It's that a lot of times you've left the front door unlocked um, and you didn't even know that you left it unlocked or you left the side door to your to your house unlocked. And so you've given pretty much open access to any, any burglar in addition to giving them the keys. It's one of those things where patching is really one of our best defenses against it. There's not really much one, one can really do about that. But in addition to patching, there's other things that we could be doing to protect ourselves as well. Now that we know about it, one such capability would be what we call runtime application protection. And so that's recognizing uh, attacks on a vulnerability like, for sure, in this case, a, a JNDI attack, as they call it in technical terms. They're recognizing the signature of that and blocking it before it's able to do any real damage. And so that's like that's the equivalent of, of changing the locks to your house now that the burglar has keys to them. Yeah, well, that's a good idea. The uh, My thesis is frequently, by the way, that uh, we have created a environment for ourselves here in the last couple of years that uh, has gotten increasingly complex, way past our own ability to manage it effectively. And in that context, I would throw hybrid cloud and Kubernetes and other container configurations and, and various other things, including a lot of open source code. And uh, I'm sure, you know, I've always been an open source advocate. You know, you get to the point, I think, where you have to ask yourself, you know, is when is it enough? Are we doing the things on the other side of the equation that need to be done? And it doesn't appear to me to be that, you know. And my question, I guess, is what, why we keep relying upon open source code and public repositories about whose dependencies we we haven't a clue uh, in terms of uh, in terms of programming dependencies you know doesn't it seem strange to you that we build production IT and and even some OT systems that ride on these dependencies about which we can't answer even the most fundamental questions you know, that's a great point, Steve. And we so you got two choices here. You could either go back to the time when it would take 
18 months to 36 months for any new bit of functionality to be developed when you had to develop everything from scratch, or you can live in a time like now where you can roll out new things every other day if you chose to. And the use of open source libraries, open source software, other third-party libraries that you could purchase, that really is one of the key things that enables organizations to be able to develop code so fast. In fact, one of our partner, uh, our partner Seek, that I mentioned earlier, um, estimates that about 80% of the code base of most cloud applications is actually composed of these third-party open source libraries. We as an organization are also no, no uh, stranger to open source. In fact, we have our Captain framework, which is a cloud automation framework that we've open sourced as well because we recognize the, the value of open source in terms of developing the, the library itself faster, with higher quality, um, in addition to helping organizations develop software that rely on those libraries a little bit to develop faster as well. It's no surprise then that with a survey of CISOs, a report that came out back in June, about 1,300 CISOs worldwide, you know, 67% of them think that developers simply don't have the time to code and scan for all um, the vulnerabilities in their application. And this, this applies across the board, whether it's for you know, open source software that the community is developing or whether it's code that you're developing in-house as well. And so what you really need is observability into how, into how things are running actually in production in order to be able to identify these things in a timely manner and prioritize you know, which vulnerabilities you need to fix I think the number could be as high as 90, 95% of code having its origins in open source. And, you know, if there were ever a opportunity for a AI or ML-based product to automate some of that verification process, it would seem to me to be in validating the dependencies and some of the transient dependencies that mm-hmm. uh, exist in in open source software before they're embedded in our production systems. And I, of course, understand the reasons why we use it, but is that really the question? You know, do you, <laughs> you want to take 18 months to roll out product or that works, or do you want to roll out a lot of product in 18 minutes, all of which is probably going to be full of known and unknown vulnerabilities? It's an interesting question for other folks than us, I guess. Kubernetes also comes to mind as a as another technology that we've really fully embraced with, I think, only a sliver of understanding about how they actually work. I read a report that researchers recently found like 380,000 publicly exposed Kubernetes API servers. Mm-hmm. You think people simply spin up these new technologies with securities and afterthought and then abandon them when they're no longer useful? I think that that's that's definitely a fair interpretation of that. The 380,000 um, publicly exposed API uh, services uh, for uh, Kubernetes services certainly does sound like a lot. I think uh, another interpretation of that would be that is that security has traditionally been a bottleneck for development. It's it's not that folks it, it, it's not that security was an afterthought. It's that you have to make a choice between whether you want to be fully secure or whether you want to get stuff out the door faster. The imperative uh, with, with digital transformation and the like has been to get things out the door faster. Well, we'll see what 
folks think about that in about a year or two when we're getting things out the door faster, but we're continually uh, under attack by uh, very successful uh, you know, hackers who mm-hmm. won't be working very hard, I'll tell you. Kubernetes, from my point of view, is incredibly complex. I, do you think that leads it by all by itself to challenges around the you know proper configuration and securing of their instances? And any thoughts you've got on software mm-hmm. supply chain security as it relates both to containers and Kubernetes as well? I'm interested in hearing. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, it, so Kubernetes introduces a lot of benefits, right, in terms of being able to, uh, you know, be a more efficiently spin up or down your applications or parts of your application to to adjust to demand as it, but then, you know, it, it, it adds yet another layer to your already complex application stack. Um, and if you think of your application stack from the top to the bottom, you could be vulnerable at any point within that application stack. and. The, the addition of uh, Kubernetes into the mix adds yet another potential point of weakness in your armor for your application. You know, whether it has to do with the version of the Kubernetes cluster that you're running that has an inherent uh, security flaw in it, or whether it has to do with the code that's running within the containers of your Kubernetes application. If you think of your supply chain as not just the components that you wrote that you're running within the Kubernetes infrastructure, but also the Kubernetes infrastructure itself is also part of that software supply chain. Having visibility into the components of that software supply, of every component of that supply chain across all layers of your application stack becomes extremely important in order to be able to identify any chink in your armor, if you will. Yeah, it becomes extremely important and almost impossible, it seems to me. I mean, as the more complex they get, the harder it is. I mean, we already know that, right? Do you -hmm. know any network engineer that you could go to right now and say, show me our network topology right now and have them be able to do it? It's a nearly impossible task if you don't have the right tools in place, because these network topologies, even application topologies, they're constantly evolving, constantly changing. It's one of the reasons why uh, configuration management databases or CMDBs in the past uh, were were considered. Uh, it's, it's a great idea in in theory, but in reality, as soon as you've updated your your configuration management database, it's out of date. It's a nearly impossible task without with, without a fair degree of automation. And so as you're looking for tools to evaluate your overall topology or understand it, it's extremely important to look for tools um, you know, like Dynatrace that are able to automatically do these mappings um, in real time so that you don't have to. Yeah, no kidding. And, I, you know, it's unfortunate, but SIMs depend upon those uh, configuration databases to for their effectiveness and um, mm-hmm. and and the fact that they're immediately out of date is at least depressing. You you and I have been around the space for a while, and maybe I'm just getting old, but it seems to me that in the last four or five years the trajectory has shifted, and we're now building systems based on technologies that we don't understand very well. Is it just me, or do you think do you think that's true, and do you think that's what the future holds as well? think uh, comes back to the old analogy of everything of software eating the world number one and two that everything is about becoming more and more complex 
you know, there, there was a time when you go into a car, you just pop up the hood of your car and figure out how to fix it, you know, based on the manual that the manufacturer provided you. Now, if you pop open the hood of your car, there, there's so many computer chips involved, it's nearly impossible to, to fix anything on your own um, unless you have the right diagnostic equipment. And that's really what you need um, as you're adopting technologies that are so complex that it's nearly impossible to fully understand them. Um, you need monitoring and observability in order to be able to, uh, to, in order to be able to really make sense of them, make sure that you're using them in the right way and that uh, you're, you're not doing things that were not originally intended. So I would say that um, an, an observability-led approach to, to adopting complex software development technologies really has to be the way to go for organizations going forward. I agree completely with that. And, you know, progress is progress, right? There's not, you deal with it as you deal with it. But, you know, you yourself have talked about the implications of Log4Shell on critical infrastructure. And we have, you know, incredible exposure on the OT side. Yeah. Um, where, you know, the energy companies can have power supply disruptions for mm-hmm. millions of customers. And yeah. what's our actual exposure in your mind on the physical side? You know, it's huge. Um, I would say just taking the example of the recent uh, discovery in, in in our energy infrastructure um, in the U.S. and in other countries that the, the, the Lazarus uh, group was able to find one chink in the armor of many uh, power generators and suppliers. It was in the most innocuous place where you would not necessarily have thought to think you would find log for shell, but yet they were able to find it. It just goes down to show that you need constant monitoring of every single layer of your technology stack, whether it's IT, whether it's OT. Um, and, and keep in mind that operational technology breaches often occur through your IT infrastructure. Um, and this is another case of that happening. You really do need to have full visibility across your entire stack in order to be able to prevent something like that from happening. Yeah, and in about 24 hours, I can get you a 1,000 people that will agree with everything you just said. Why don't we do that? That's a great question, and I think some of it has to do with established processes within organizations or different parts of the organization working in silos. You know, IT and security um, have typically worked in silos in the past. One of my greatest uh, fears would be that we're not able to really bring IT and security together uh, in order to be able to resolve issues like that. We really need a new approach uh, that's going to bring everybody together looking at the same set of data with a common understanding of what's actually important and what the threats are within the environment. I don't know how to do that either, but we're about to launch a online education platform here on which we've been working for like over a year. And we expect and hope that it'll be groundbreaking in its approach. How important do you think education is to our future in cybersecurity? If you were to design a program, where would you place the heaviest emphasis? No, it's a great question, Stephen. Absolutely. As someone who has been accused of being overeducated, I definitely think that education is an extremely important part to solving a lot of this problem. I, you know, if I was to if I was to place emphasis anywhere, it's really in the explosion of data across the IT security, 
um, being able to make sense of it and then using it to make rational decisions, um, whether it's bringing everybody to the same page, a common understanding of the prioritization, even discovering that you've been breached or what your vulnerability looks like. I think the, the use of data and analytics would be one of the areas that I would uh, suggest emphasizing. Yeah, I hear you and I agree. I just hope we can get there in time. Final question, and I'm aware of our uh, clock here that we're almost out of time. What's your greatest fear about cybersecurity? You know, Steve, my greatest fear is that we're going to be stuck in our old ways of, and thoughts of doing things, that security and IT are going to continue to operate in silos. Um, looking at different tool sets to reach the same decisions, not agreeing on what needs to happen going forward, that we're not going to you know, shift our mindset and the way we're organized in time in order to be able to prevent you know, the, the onslaught of, uh, of vulnerabilities and attacks that we're definitely going to see uh, coming our way. The only way I can see to prevent this is to have a common understanding across IT security operations or your DevSecOps, if you will, into what what's actually going on in your environment and how you can prioritize the right things going forward. Yeah, I hear you. That's definitely one of them for sure. Well, we're at the end of our allocated half hour here, Amit. I, I really appreciate you taking the time out of your busy schedule to join us and share your thoughts. And I thought they were illuminating. So thank you again, and I, I thank also our audience for taking the time to, to listen to this today, and I hope they were able to take away something of value. So between now and our next podcast, I'll uh, end this by thanking you again, Amit. This is Amit Shah, the Director of Application Security Product Marketing at Dynatrace. Have a nice day. You as well, Steve. Thank you very much. I really enjoyed our conversation and I look forward to chatting with you um, in the future. We'll do it again. Thank you. Thank you for joining us for another episode of Cybersecurity Unplugged. You can connect with us on LinkedIn or Facebook at Cyber Theory or send us an email at social at cybertheory.io. For more information about the podcast, visit cybertheory.io forward slash podcast. Until next week, thanks again.